Looking back, Ravna Bergsendot saw it was inevitable that she become a librarian. As a child on Sandra Kai, she had been in love with stories from the age of princesses. There was adventure, a time when a few brave ladies had dragged humankind to greatness. She and her sister had spent countless afternoons pretending to be the greater two and rescuing the Countess of the Lake. Later, they understood that Nijora and its princesses were lost in the dim past. Sister Lynn turns to more practical things. But Ravna still wanted adventure. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. If you haven't joined us before, welcome. It's the world's smallest book club about big books. Our gimmick is that we read a text over 500 pages or so. We don't do word count. We don't, you know, do character count. We just randomly grab whatever the publisher made into 500 pages and call it good. Um, we're really excited about this text. Uh, you know, we, we, we tend to the vacillate between things like War and Peace or Black Lemon Gray Falcon, and then uh, a Connie Willis book, essentially. Um, this time, we're more on the Connie Willis side of the spectrum. Um, in fact, there's actually a Connie Willis connection to this title. We read Werner Vinge's A Fire Upon the Deep. It's basically a book that circles around a lot of really cool thought experiments with the MacGuffin tied to it. It was a big sci-fi novel when it came out. I feel like it's it's persistent in its reputation, but I actually am curious, Bill, if you can maybe contextualize a little bit, you know, how, how popular is this book? How famous is it? And, you know, kind of where did it come from in the 90s? Yeah, so I'm not sure how popular or famous it is today. It was a fairly big deal when it came out in the 90s. It came out in 1992, won the Hugo for Best Novel in 1993, sharing it with, as Joel has already indicated or referenced, I guess, uh, Connie Willis's Doomsday Book, which we did a couple years ago on this podcast. So that's kind of a fun synchronicity there. Um, I think Vinge was this. I think this is Vinge's biggest book, although he's written plenty of other stuff too. Uh, and it was definitely very well received at the time. I don't think it really made its way out of the sort of sci-fi, you know, ghetto of the 1990s the way some other things did. Um, this book was given to me. The reason we're reading it, uh, my copy was given to me for Christmas last year by a friend of the podcast, Zach, who uh, sent it to me with a note from Amazon that reads, Merry Christmas, Bill. This is the best book about group mind dog packs I have ever read. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, and I will say, at first I thought that was maybe some sort of, like, metaphor for, like, the way people sort of behave like dog packs. No, it's about hive mind dogs. That is that is a big That's part of what the this story. book is about. That's what it is. And it's great. It's uh, It rocks. Um, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I think that amongst sort of I have a theory that, like, nothing is ever less popular in sci-fi than whatever was popular, like, 20 minutes ago, right? And I yes. think Connie Willis has suffered from that some, and I think some of the other big 90s sci-fi authors have. Um, maybe not so much KSR, Kim Stanley Robinson, although certainly I don't think he's as famous in the broader popular consciousness as he was during the Mars trilogy. But, like, Werner Vinge, C.J. Cherry, however you say her name, some of those folks, I think, are, are not as well-known today, which is a shame, because there's a lot of really fun stuff from that era, like, a Fire Upon the Deep, which I think we both really enjoyed. Uh, it's one of those kitchen sink books, as I think you called it in one of our previous conversations. Um, uh, it's a book about the sort of two or three main ideas, but it's also got, you know, charitably 160 others <laughs> thrown in just for fun, sort of the way Chishian Liu does stuff. And uh, 
I haven't read a hard sci-fi book like this in a minute. Um, it, you know, it's not like years, but it's been a year maybe. And this is certainly the hardest sci-fi book we have done for the podcast. I mean, Doomsday Book has some real stuff in it, but it's got a very different vibe, as we talked about. Always Coming Home is not exactly the same thing, you know. So this is certainly the closest to, like, a big space opera I think we've done on the podcast, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think Ursula Le Guin and Connie Willis, they both have very, like, strict systems of how their worlds work. I mean, Le Guin, of course, is basically just an anthropologist at times. But they're usually dealing with more like sociological or society stuff. Like that's the side of the hard science almost they're dealing with, right? Like Honeywell has very strict time travel rules, but it's still basically just just magic that makes sense, which is, you know, a, there's some of that in here too, actually. But I agree. I, we didn't read it together for the podcast, but I think we read the three body, the three body problem the same year um, or around the same year. And, and this is definitely yeah, around the same time. Yeah, this is definitely um, taking me back to that mentality. Uh, in a way that I really enjoyed. I will say I, I really um, I really respect the way like the sci-fi community sort of archives its own best practitioners. And I feel like it's actually better. I don't know if it's currently good at it, but traditionally it's been almost better at it than I think um, the, you know, the more general fiction side of things. Like, you know, Gene Wolfe is this kind of underrated master, quote unquote, or whatever. But he was like a what was he? He's a grand master of yada yada. You know, he's been canonized within the community. Similarly, um, the imprints for sci-fi stuff, um, for sci-fi novels and fiction and so forth. I think they do a good job kind of, you know, like almost doing their own version of Penguin Classics within within the publishers. So like my version of A Fire Upon the Deep is from Tor Essentials, right? Tor has gone out of its way to like select texts that they don't want to kind of, you know, have float away on the flotsam of history. So I, I don't know. I, I really, I really appreciate that actually, because someone like me who I really like sci-fi, but I'm not ever feel like up to date on it. Like you can look through Tor Essentials and find some books that sound absolutely buck wild and are probably pretty good. Um, I find that very helpful the older I get, especially as a librarian. But this book for sure is about all of the, for lack of a better phrase, cool ideas <laughs> it throws against the wall <laughs> there's some real writing stuff that i think we could get into at least once or twice um you know i don't ever want to dismiss someone you know who has a lot of good ideas for like having no prose skills because i think you know he is trying to do some real things especially with dialogue but um but i you know i think honestly we probably need like a, a short outline of who people are and a short outline of kind of what the plot stakes are and then i think we're gonna just dive into all of the cool ideas he fits into this this really fun novel I think that's right. Okay, so Fire Upon the Deep. Um, there's a lot of stuff in this book. I'm going to try to skim over most of it, just give you sort of the general ideas and go from there, okay? So the impetus of the book is there. First of all, it's a gajillion years into the future, right? Um, it's not clear exactly how long ago, but, like, nobody even talks about Earth anymore. Occasionally they talk about how, yeah, humans are originally from this place called Earth. But almost all of the humans we meet are really think of their sort of ancestral homeland, not even where they live now, but their ancestral homeland as this planet Nijora. And I'm not sure how much of this is actually in the book as opposed to in some of the other books he's written in this, but like most of the humans we meet are like long lost descendants of this like Norwegian mining vessel, right? <laughs> and so they, they, all, they all have sort of uh, Scandinavian naming conventions, uh, you know, Ravna Bergson dot, uh, Johanna Olsen dot, you know, and... Uh, 
uh, they speak a language called Samnorsk, which is some sort of long descendant of, of a mix of various Norwegian names. Anyway, this doesn't really matter, but it's the kind of book it is where, you know, there's so much density that you can't even just say the humans from Earth. No, the humans from, well, from Straumli Realm and Shandrakai, who are originally from Nijora and, you know, maybe literally two million years ago were from Earth. <laughs> well, and, and actually, to your point of how, how dense it can be, so... They often talk about the age of princesses, like the Middle Ages, but they're talking about a Nigerian Middle Age that happened because te- there was like a, a fall off in technology, right? So like these, yeah. you know, kind of uh, space explorers go to these planets and then they, you know, kind of they go there and they live there. And then there's this digression. There's this like regression, I should say, to an earlier kind of Middle Age life. But it's not even an Earth Middle Ages. It's like a futuristic Middle Ages that happens in cycles with all of these technological rises and falls. And so it took me a long, not a long time, but I, for a while I didn't realize that like he's talking about a specifically space explorer middle age, not an earth middle age. And that's, that's the kind of thing he's doing throughout the novel is there's always this extra layer of information he's playing with. Absolutely. So the impetus of the novel is uh, some of these colonists from Stromley realm, uh, human colonists, uh, trip over an ancient computer archive from a bajillion, you know, five billion years ago, I think is literally true, right? And so they're investigating it because they think they can find out a lot of cool stuff, but in accident, by accident, they wake up this, you know, ancient and malevolent AI that starts trying to spread over and destroy the galaxy, essentially, right? Um, a party of these people, which is almost entirely children in cold sleep and then a few grown-ups, managed to get away, helped by the inbuilt countermeasure that's built in the AI system. They managed to get away and they crash land on this planet where there's uh, the, the local aliens are, they, they, they start calling them Tynes. It's not clear to me what their name for themselves was before, which are literally groups of sentient dog packs, right? Where an individual, when they talk about like, Here's Steve, right? Steve is a collection of five or six or three or eight individual, like, wolves, basically, right? And they have, uh, they're not literally the same as dogs. They've got longer necks, and they can articulate things with their mouths in a way that regular canines can't. Um, But they're, you know, one guy is actually a group of three to eight people, right? Three to eight individual consciousnesses, which work together until they form one sort of gestalt consciousness. And... Basically, the rest of the galaxy is trying to find this crashed ship because they realize that's where the countermeasure is that is going to help defeat the evil AI. Um, The adults on the ship are killed almost immediately. Two children end up on two different sides of a Middle Ages war between the Tynes. And so you have two major plots going on. You have the two groups of children, or the the two children sort of in the middle of this internecine Middle Ages war here, right? Well, at the same time, a ship from the broader part of the galaxy is trying to make its way down to the Tynes world to find this countermeasure, and in the process are talking to one of the children on, like, subspace radio and inadvertently giving technological advancements to the local uh, Tynes and the bad guys, to be clear. Like, the, the people they're giving the technology to directly are this really bad sort of fascist eugenicist uh, society that lives on this Middle Ages planet. Uh, that's the plot that I'm going to talk about right now. The only other main idea I think we need to talk about is this book. Uh, so Vinge has written a couple of other books in this universe, not like a not like a hundred of them. I think there's two other full-length novels, one of which is a vast prequel about one of the characters, 
and one of which is a direct sequel. Um, I haven't heard too much about these. I, I, talk, I spoke with Zach, who uh, gave me the book, and I think he says the sequel is not as good. I haven't read it. I don't have an opinion. But the main idea, these books are called the Zones of Thought series, because the sort of central animating conceit is that the closer you get to the center of the galaxy, the stupider computers are and the slower you can go, right? So towards the center of the galaxy, kind of where we live, faster than light travel is impossible, and computers can't do some of the incredible high-level sentient stuff they're doing in other places. As you go further out from the center of the galaxy, you travel through other zones where faster than light travel becomes possible, and you can do all kinds of crazy stuff with automation, until eventually when you get to the very edge of the galaxy, uh, there's a part of space there where everything that lives there are these sort of ascended, you know, incomprehensibly powerful transcended societies that have maybe become hive minds or maybe they're just individual people. It's not quite clear, but they're sort of like Cthulhu, right? They just do stuff and everybody living in the middle parts of the galaxy doesn't understand them and mostly tries to stay out of their way, right? Um, and so this is the other sort of main thing, these, these quote, zones of thought, right? You have the the unthinking depths at the center, you have the slowness around that, the beyond around that, and then the transcend beyond that. And that gets confusing and messy, and we're just going to deal with it individually. But I think if you understand the two main ideas, the zones of thought and the way the tines generally work, that they're hive mind dog packs, and understand that it's sort of a race from people from the beyond to get down to this tines planet to find the countermeasure that will destroy the evil AI, I think that's mostly what you need to know. Um, what do you think, Joel? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think the two things you've hit on, too, zones of thought and the Tynes hive mind, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that this novel comes at the, not the birth of the internet, obviously, but like kind of the mainstreaming of the internet in the early 90s. That feels totally appropriate for this novel because uh, uh, central to this novel is actually something that he calls the net, right? And the net of a million lies, they call it, because <laughs> everyone on there is just posting a bunch of bullcrap. But it's like it's really central to the plot that these people across, you know, across the galaxy can talk to each other in a way that is impossible, for example, in the slow zones. And which is an obvious, like, you know, he's just scaling up the internet. And I actually, it took me a, it took me a long time, to be honest, to get my head around the zones of thought. I just couldn't, I couldn't quite get there for some reason until I started thinking of it as basically like an organic Wi-Fi signal, right? So, like, there's really, <laughs> it's really strong in some areas and really weak in other areas. And if it's weak, you know, you can't, you literally can't do high-level computing in parts of you know the galaxy where it's weak, um, almost like a bad Wi-Fi signal. But I, I, it's more complicated than that. But I, I think there is a question, of course, which we'll get to, behind like he, you know, are the zones of thought actually organic, or were they themselves created? Because like most great sci-fi, in my opinion, there's a way in which all of the technology is almost just like this re-enchantment of fables. You know what I mean? Like he's always dealing, mm -hmm. especially this book, he's always dealing with these questions of mythic proportions, right? So the hero um, of this story is, I, I'm probably Ravna, but the one that is kind of like a hero archetype is the guy named Fam Nguyen, who we'll come to in a second. But Fam Nguyen is literally this sort of avatar of a god right for at least part of the novel and he has these you know he like these explicit tropes are talked about by the characters that the transcendent societies sort of become the gods of this galaxy in a very literal way um so it kind of literalizes all the mythic stuff but it's consistently it's consistently going there I, and the, the biggest part you talked about like the humans who begin the story they open pandora's box right that's what they open Absolutely. right 
Yeah. Um, and so he, I, and so I, for me, I love that stuff. I, I love all of that stuff. It's kind of, you know, deep lost civilization, great evil that existed 5 billion years ago. You know, this is, this is Star Wars, Mass Effect, all that, you know, those stories at least hint at that same kind of idea of technology that exists billions of years in the past. But I think this novel was really, I just, he, he's obsessed with sort of group consciousness, right? And he's obsessed with the idea of technology enabling group consciousness, which seems to be clearly um, a reflection of him thinking in a, in a new internet age, don't you think? Absolutely. Uh, I also think we, we do need to tag the internet as it exists is really funny because in many ways it does feel really accurate to like the modern internet. But of course it was written in 1992 which means whenever you see a page of text, like the, the, uh, throughout the novel, there'll be a page of text, which is like a post on Facebook or whatever, right? But what it is, is it's BBS boards and Usenet, yep. right? It's yeah. like, it looks exactly like those old school, late uh, late 80s, early 90s uh, internet mechanisms for communication, which is, first of all, really fun. I love reading sci-fi that is both really smart and completely mired in whatever was going on at the time. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. that's always the most fun part, like... What sorts of things could they imagine and what sorts of things couldn't? Like at one point, I think one of the big uh, relay, which is this place, which is a massive, basically, transmitter for the Internet, talks about how it's got an incredible signal. It's measured in kilobit, kilobytes, you know what I mean? <laughs> I love that. No, I, I, honestly, every time I got to a new net posting, it did. It, I mean, the, the closest thing we have to now in our modern Internet is kind of Reddit, right? Like Reddit's kind of the closest, like, but imagine if the, the entire Internet was just Reddit, and also, you had to type in the HTML yourself for like what username you were. Um, but I do think I do think the zones. So he borrows. The, I I should have written this down. He borrows the zones of thought from actually a, a different novel in like the '60s, I believe. So it's an idea in sci-fi okay. that it, that I think pre-existed Venge. That's at least what my intro said. But I think he he's the one who kind of really um, solidifies you know, how it might or might not work. Because again, like every sci-fi novel we tend to read, apparently, Bill, this is kind of about Fermi's <laughs> paradox, right? Like, why does yeah. no one contact us? Well, it's because Earth is in the slow zone and no one can do faster than light travel here and they don't want to be stranded basically in the ocean and die, you know, at sea is kind of how they think of it on a galactic scale. Um, I do think it's funny that Fermi's paradox really is like this, it's this endlessly motivating, you know, sci-fi conundrum. Because three-body problem... Um, uh, the thing uh, itself. The thing itself. Thank you. And then this, you know, that that's the three last kind of sci-fi novels I've read that really care about it, and they're three of the, the three of the most fun I've read. The thing itself is in a different league, in my opinion, but um, yes, they're all really good. But that's not fair. So, <laughs> yeah, it's really not fair <laughs> to bring him up to, for most of this stuff. But so okay, so the zones of thought are vital. I do think we need to kind of go through the characters a little bit. Like you mentioned, there's kind of two camps. There's the there's a the Tynes world, the Tynes are the pack of conscious dogs. And then there's kind of the, the space plot, which is Ravna, who's a librarian, and Fam Nguyen. What is Fam Nguyen, Bill? <laughs> well, this is one of the big questions of the book is what exactly is Fam Nguyen? But one of the, the powers, which is what they call these ascended civilizations or consciousnesses or whatever they are, right? Uh sends an envoy to Relay, where Ravna's working as a librarian, trying to tell them, hey, you gotta, you really got to find this crashed spaceship, right? This, this blight is a bigger deal than you think it is, the big evil AI. But, of course, the Transcend is just as the Beyond, right, which is where most of the major galactic civilizations are, 
is infinitely faster and cooler than the slow zone, which is infinitely faster and cooler than the unthinking depths, so too is the transcend infinitely faster and cooler than the beyond, right? So the power cannot show up itself to the beyond, or it will no longer be a power anymore, right? It will be right. unable to do all of the high-level automation and AI and FTL that it would need to do. So it wants to send an emissary. And so to do that, it constructs a human being, basically, out of spare parts. Uh, and it's clear from the beginning that that's sort of what happened. The big question is whether there was actually a human being there with real memories or not, right? And this is a question that runs throughout the entire book, whether Pham Nguyen is actually a real guy who's been sort of cobbled together, you know, with spare, the spare parts preparing him, or whether he was a complete construct. Because he has all these memories of uh, both growing up on a Middle Ages kind of planet and then eventually becoming a spacefaring sort of space pirate type uh, in, like, the slow zone, right? Um, and so Pham... And then not long after they meet Fam, the power at issue that is sort of using him as a channel dies. It is destroyed by the blight, leaving Fam in this sort of broken state of having like bits and pieces of a god's mentality in his mind, even as he's also just like a dude, right? Um, they call it God Shatter. Um, which, first of all, a lot of the language in this book uh, kicks, right? So, so fun. Like, it's so fun. The, uh, the, the study of how powers work amongst like the smart but not power not power races and such is applied theology <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is fantastic right um so fam is has memories of being like a space pirate in a more traditional spacefaring civilization he's also got bits and pieces of a god rattling around in his brain and he may be able to destroy the blight if they get to the tines world or he may not he might just be crazy and ravna and fam kind of fall in love and also fight with each other a whole bunch and a lot of the tension in the like space chase part of this book is exactly what is fam's whole deal and can we trust him uh, i think he's a really fun character uh, also the, the sh <clears throat> i should tell you there's a ship that's going from relay uh this this transmitter location to the tines world and it's going to take a very long time it takes it's supposed to take six months and it actually takes something like nine months right and uh the ship is called the out of bound two and the primary crew on this ship is a pair of Scrode Riders, which is the other really fun alien race we get to spend some time with. Scrode Riders are little plants, like little fronds that like live in the ocean. And they, they're intelligent, but they have no short-term memory whatsoever, right? So it's kind of hard for them to do stuff because it has to, you know, on their own, an idea has to really percolate into their consciousness for a long time to get written into long-term storage. Uh, and so a, a very long time ago, somebody, which is the question, right, gave them what they call scrodes, which are little, like, computer ATVs. Uh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's exactly what they are. They're, they're, they're basically sentient palm trees riding around on go-karts. It's amazing. And the go-karts, in addition to allowing them to move, also contain, basically, RAM, right? Basically, the ability to have short-term memory. Uh, and there's two Scrode Riders, and it's their ship. There's Blue Shell and Greenstock. And, of course, that's probably not their actual names, but that's the language that the humans can make sense of. And uh, Blue Shell and Greenstock are fantastic, because uh, even though they've got these scrodes that allow them to have short-term memory, they're still easily distracted, you know? They can get, because uh, the scrodes don't work perfectly, these are very old machines, you know what I mean? Uh, and so it's possible for the, them to get distracted and to not write stuff correctly into long-term memory, and having a conversation with them can occasionally be very frustrating. But they're also very experienced traders and really curious people, so they're really neat. And anyway, and then back on the Tynes world, the other main characters, uh, so there's a, they call him a pilgrim. His name is Peregrine, starts out as Peregrine Rickrackrim. Uh, and he is a collection of six, I think, dogs who 
trip over this spaceship when it lands and actually rescue Joanna because the bad guys are killing all the people on the ship at first, right? And Peregrine and a couple of others actually rescue Joanna Olsendot, who's one of the two daughters, and take her to the sort of good guy times, while the bad guy times manage to get a hold of Jeffrey Olsendot, her, her brother. And uh, that's what sets up part of the fun of the novel is these two groups of Tynes fighting with each other and both in their own way communicating with the future. Jeffrey has a direct connection to Ravna's ship and Joanna brought with her basically a, it's a stuffed animal that has a tablet in it essentially. Yeah. And the tablet <laughs> has like all of human knowledge in it. And so the uh, the Tynes that are working with Joanna managed to decipher a lot of how to make like gunpowder and stuff out of this machine, whereas Jeffrey is deliberately relaying information from Ravna to, as it turns out, the bad guys, although he doesn't know that at the time. Uh, the bad guys, are they're called Flenserites, because, so one of the big questions for the Tynes in terms of how they sort of keep their, their souls going as they think about it, is there's the old school way where you just sort of, every so often you either, two of your members mate and give you a new puppy, which is part of your consciousness, or occasionally you might pick up a new one on the side of the road, which is like what the pilgrims do, what Peregrine does, right? Uh, and the old school ways, you just kind of let this naturally happen until eventually you're too inbred and you die, right? Yeah. Um, well, a long time ago, a uh, a time called Woodcarver started sort of trying to be a little more deliberate about stuff and sort of doing some deliberate eugenics in the sense of like deliberate sort of breeding and stuff, right? And then one of her disciples, and I think even one of her children, I think, is Flenser, who takes this up to the next level where he will actually like murder parts of himself and torture them and raise them in like horrifying situations that they have specific abilities and specific sort of uh, affordances, right? Uh, and he's just this horrible eugenicist fascist guy, right? Uh, he's actually been theoretically killed at the beginning of the novel, which is really fun, and one of his disciples, one of his great creations, Steel, who is a brilliant but deeply unhinged, uh, like, warlord, is the one who finds Jeffrey and starts trying to use the information he's getting from space to kill Woodcarver. Uh, it gets very complicated, but um, those are, I guess, the sort of the main characters you need to care about there. Does that sound well, right? Well, and it's, I, yeah, oh, it's perfect. And I, I think what's so great about this novel, and a lot of novels, you know, in the kind of more hard sci-fi, the successful hard sci-fi style, is if you had just the Tynes and just the Scrooge writers, it would be a pretty successful experiment in like a novel about yeah. consciousness, right? Like you would, like he, he has these transcend ideas about consciousness. He has Pham Nguyen, who's also an experiment in consciousness. Cause there's this way in which this novel for all of its, like it, it continually literalizes these, these kind of mythic or almost spiritual ideas, right? There are gods, they're called transcend, you know, societies, and they come from basically integration of, organic beings and AI, right? There's some kind of way in which they become a single entity, I think, and become, you know, transcendent. And like, but it happens physically, right? It happens within this kind of physical realm. And and you have that on one side, kind of this literalizing of these these mythic ideas, but you, you never kind of get away from almost this spiritual question. Like I, I found it very um, compelling how the Tynes continually talk about their souls. And they can kind of physically adjust their souls because they are as individuals they are made up of member bodies right so you have like five member bodies and if you take one body away you sort of change the soul but the soul is still consistent right like one of the main characters woodcarver has been alive for 600 years or whatever right and at this point though through all the inbreeding that's kept her consistent she is you know basically on her deathbed and the question is okay do i bring new members into this pack and kind of 
I can continue in a certain sense, but I will become a new person through this like soul evolution, right? The soul of myself will change. And the same question is true for Flinzer, the you know, kind of the other one of the other characters you mentioned who's against Woodcarver essentially. Flinzer kind of survives within this being called Tyrethect, but there's this question of like these, there's one point in the book where it talks about Tyrethect and Flinzer's souls basically fighting at a, at a level of consciousness and sort of one is inflecting and changing the other and vice versa. And I found that to be like pretty much mystical, right? Like that's like he, like he has all these physical descriptions of hive mind or whatever, but truthfully, the problem of consciousness, the way that it emerges from material reality and the way that it inflects material reality remains at a completely mystical or mysterious level. I don't know. I don't know if that struck you at all, but I, I actually found that to be one of the one of the joys of the novel, how he didn't ever back away from that kind of mystery language. He sort of just says, yeah, they have souls. They that's how they talk. They're middle-aged creatures. But the souls are also treated very, like, very seriously with a lot of weight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, it's uh, nothing magical is actually happening in these books, right? But the only way to think about it is to kind of use this sort of more mystical or religious language because it's, again, it's, it's incomprehensible otherwise, right? The powers aren't literally, they're not gods in the sense that they are, you know, created from some other plane of existence or whatever. But on the other hand, they live on a literal other plane of existence in the sense that they are further away from the galactic core than everybody else. They are completely incomprehensible. They do their own things. At what point are they not just gods, right? Like, right. they are. And similarly the souls that they talk about is sort of the gestalt consciousness of these three to eight dogs that is then changed by literally killing or and taking new people into your yourself. But like, again, it's not, is it a soul in a literal sort of transcendent thing? I guess, I guess not. But again, there's no really other way to think about this. Right. And it's really fun when you have an idea that literalizes this sort of mystical language, like you're saying. I, and I think it's one of the great strengths of the book, as you've said. Well, and I just I find it so enjoyable how how committed he is to kind of unpacking. This is what I like about a lot of fiction, period, is that I, I think when it literalizes these um, kind of symbolic truths, well, right. So like consciousness, it, it is still currently a mystery, right? There is still not a great explanation for like the emergence of this, you know, kind of the uh, self-reflective mind, right? Like there's actually this famous bet that I just heard of. These two neurologists were like, hey, in 25 years, 25 years ago, I bet you that we will have a concrete explanation for the emergence of consciousness. Another guy said, I bet we won't. And the guy said, I bet we won't. Won. He won the bet because we still don't have one. But I, I like that though, because it, do it doesn't mean that you have to back away from all the cool ideas. It actually means the cool ideas become uh, more reflective of the emotional reality of being alive. This book isn't really about, you know, what it means to to be alive in some sense, but of course it is too. Like it is about the way, like what does aging feel like? Well, at times it does feel like you're adding different, different parts to yourself. You're almost adding different selves to yourself in a way that I think is really wonderfully depicted here, right? There is a core self that sort of centers who I always am. And yet, you know, 35-year-old Joel versus 20-year-old Joel, there have been selves that I've added to that core that have really warped and changed and grown who I am. Um, and that's not to turn it into like a, you know, a self-help novel, but <laughs> I, do, I do think that emotional reality really is the heart of fiction in some ways. And I like it when um, even hard sci-fi can kind of find ways to get there. But, but anyway, we can move on from that. We don't have to, you know... Well, this is this is a related 
this is a related idea, but, you know, so the time, like Peregrine talks about being X many hundreds of years old, right? None of his constitutive members were there at the beginning, right? This is a right, sort of yeah. a collective hallucination that the current group of members have because there's sort of a ship of Theseus thing going on, right? Where you can sort of show continuity from whoever first became Peregrine 300 years ago or whatever it was, right? Um, and obviously, to some extent, that's true of human beings too, right? Like all of, none of the cells that are in my body right now are the same cells that were there 34 years ago, right? And so there's another way in which one of the main questions you have to ask is to what extent is this also to some extent true of human beings, right? We don't, we're not individual right. separate organisms, except to some extent we also sort of are, right? And so yeah. there's all, all kinds of fun questions to be asked there too. I don't know, it's a cool book. And I will say, I like this, I like the zones of thought stuff. The Tynes were by far my favorite part of the book. I could have hung out with the Tynes for 800 more pages. Every time there was a new like uh, re revelation of how they think of themselves or just a fun little idiomatic idiomatic joke like at one point he talks there's like a there's a fight that goes on and the characters get like the, the members get scattered a little bit right and they talk about pulling themselves together right and that's like a really fun <laughs> yeah. idiomatic joke because it's we, we talk about that pull yourself together man yeah. but also they're literally pulling themselves together they're literally grabbing all their parts and putting them within you know 30 feet of each other rather than scattered over half a mile like that's just a fun little gag but it it, it makes sense no, I, I agree. I thought the Tynes part was definitely the strongest parts of the book for me, including even he, he just um, to, the, to the extent that the Tynes are a thought experiment about Pat consciousness. He, he just finds new angles on it in a really fun way. So the Tynes, because there's a, you know, they're again, they they a little like the zones of thought are almost operating by organic Wi-Fi. Right. There's a signal yeah, between them that's absolutely. happening. And so when they get too like so when one pat consciousness gets too close to another pat consciousness they either are having sex and kind of go wild and animal or they go mad right they, they have a hard time thinking and maintaining their own kind of individuality if they're too physically close um and i think what he does with that angle is he introduces humans who are not pack creatures and the way that they can touch and mingle with the um the tines changes how the times, you know, it changes their entire concept of society. I don't know, but like he just carries it through in a really thoughtful and consistent way. Um, I will say one other thing about the pack consciousness, and this is why I think I like the mystical versus the um, hard sci-fi. Like, I like, I like the, the, what is it? The horseshoe theory of hard sci-fi and fantasy, <laughs> I guess is what I'm, yeah. is what I'm giving. So the right Arthur C. Clarke point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, but I think my, my theory of that, like could be, you know, the, I, I could kind of, say that best and shortest by saying like the pack consciousness is basically actually you know how you say this word it's an egregore or egregore so that's like a collective entity right there's this occult occult idea that's sometimes even christianized that um a group of people can give rise to a consciousness from their own thoughts that it becomes its own self like that's what the dogs are doing you know what i mean like it's this it's the same yeah. idea he's just doing it from from the hard sci-fi angle um, but yeah, the, I agree. The times, the times are great, and I, I, I'm, I, even if Zach says maybe the uh, the sequel isn't as good, it's going to be hard not to read it at some point because I think it takes place mostly in the times world. Yes, that's my understanding. So that's kind of the times stuff, and I'll, we'll come back to that in a second. But I, the, I think, um, I think on the space side of the plot with Ravna and Fam and the Scrode writers, I, I do think at times it's less compelling. But we, we kind of skipped past it. 
I really enjoy the part where the old one, who is this transcendent being that kind of controls fam, I really enjoy when he dies. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a really good it's a it's a really good scene, but I also think um the the novel does such a you know, such a, it's so, it's so fun on the concept of the blight, like right? this AI Pandora's box creature that's been released. Cause everyone kind of thinks like, Oh, this is a class two perversion, right? They like, they heard of evil AI, right? We know even yeah. like, and it's funny how kind of rational everyone can be like, yeah, it'll kill like a few billion people. It's bad, but like, it's just a class two perversion, which again is sort of, I think accurate for a galactic mindset, right? Like 2 billion people, billions of people are going to die. And this is kind of be, being discussed in these really, dry terms well it's because it's a galaxy full of trillions and trillions of people right but what he does well is like you know everyone's investigating the class two perversion i think the reader knows it's more than a class two perversion like you know they know it's my it's a it's a bigger and badder thing but you don't really know viscerally until the blight kills an old one which is straight up like it's like hades rising and in killing one of the gods of olympus right it's this sort of like oh this is a different opposition than we were thinking it was and the world in which Ravana and fam meet and this, this kind of relay station you've talked about it basically because it's built on anti-grav and stuff it disintegrates along with the old one in front of their eyes which I thought was a really great scene and a great way to escalate kind of the danger of the blight for our um, for our heroes but I, I was curious what you thought about the angelic creatures they come in contact with or whatever the winged creature, the, oh, the, the butterfly, the butterfly people. The butterfly fashion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I was trying to get to eventually was, so you have all these great creatures, but like, again, thrown on the side are these butterfly fascists, which can you talk us through that, Bill? <laughs> yeah. So um, at one point, the space crew goes to this uh, repair station. So there, when the, when relay is destroyed and the old one is destroyed, um, the ship wasn't quite ready to go yet, but like it's the end of the world there, and so they leave because the alternative is to be annihilated, right? And as they're running away, they they damage some of their warp drive. That's not what it's called, but I don't, you know, if I try to explain every single thing he gets into, we're going to be here all day, right? So they they need to go get their dilithium crystals checked, right? Like they need they need to go do some repair work, and they end up in this place with this uh, there's a variety of interesting little alien species there. But at one point, they run into this, the Aprahanti, which are a bunch of little, cute, like, pixie-looking guys with butterfly wings, right? I think they're smaller than people, but they're sort of a humanoid figure with butterfly wings. And um, what's funny is they're always described as being sort of beautiful and, and gorgeous and sort of, like, sort of fae-like. But all the people who know what they are are like, oh, crap, these guys are here. <laughs> because they're, like, warlike Klingon conquerors, right? Like, who, who fought a war not very long ago and didn't win you know, but fought a war over a lot of the other nearby civilizations right. and eventually get gets sort of hijacked uh, so, so that the idea becomes and sort of the internet is that the humans are responsible for the blight, right? They opened Pandora's box. Who knows how many of them have been corrupted by the blight and who knows how many of them were working with it in the first place. So a lot of the internet people get it in their head. They should commit genocide against the existing human civilizations, not just the one that sent out the colony, but the one that that is a colony of, Chandra Kai, which is the main uh, human world at this point. And they do, in fact. The Aprahanti uh, throw an asteroid at the planet and blow it up, killing yeah. goodness knows how many billions of people, rendering most human beings essentially homeless at this point because Stromley Realm was already destroyed by the Blight. So um, there's these butterfly fascists who commit genocide and then spend a bunch of time chasing Ravna's ship around 
for like the back half of the novel, along with everybody in the galaxy is chasing the ship at this point, right? Like the remaining human ships are chasing to try to destroy the Aprahanti who blew up their planet. The Aprahanti are chasing them. There's a bunch of ships that have been directly corrupted by the Blight that are chasing them. Uh, so you have this one little ship, which is, you know, a pretty cool ship, but it's not like a hardcore warship, right? Being chased by like 400 other spaceships <laughs> and just really hoping that they can keep getting away from it. Uh, but that was a fun little, you know, they put a face to the 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 idea that this this information gets spread around and the internet decides this group of people deserve to die and then they do it, which is one of the ways you can tell this is a hard sci-fi novel, right? Because that is, it's not, it's just a thing that happens, right? And yeah. it's very emotionally important for like Raven and some of the other people, but we have not actually spent time there, right? We didn't go to Chandrakai at any point in this novel, or Sandrick, I'm not sure how to say it. Um, and this is the sort of thing that like hard sci-fi novels do, where they're like, all right, the consequences of this is the destruction of an entire civilization, and you still have to go to work tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what happens. I do like I it's it's this is not a great comparison in some ways, because I think the tension is not quite as 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 visceral, but the the when once the race is on, once people know that Ravna and Fam and Blue Shell and Greenstock are going toward this, you know, possibly very important destination in terms of the blight like once the race is on it did sometimes give me um the vibe of the first episode of Battlestar Galactica the, the, the new one you know oh like yeah the, yeah every 30 minutes because there because there's a way in which again Vin you know, Vin just so committed to how the universe works you know hard sci-fi we keep saying but there's this really visceral way in which like the race it slows down it speeds up they're in range they're out of range they have to actually do this kind of space drone mine warfare at like a light year distance. And it, 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 it like, it's a very intense race, but there's sort of this like palpable kind of um, almost slow building of, you know, conflict that I found really, that was the best part of the space plot for me, to be honest. No, I agree with that. Um, also, so it, one of the one of the factions, one of the army, you know, navies that's chasing them is what's left of Sandra Kai's like security forces, right? And they're not really chasing Ravna so much as the people who are chasing Ravna. But uh, he, he's, he suddenly switches perspective. Like, most of the book is from the perspective of either Ravna, Fam, or Jeffrey or Joanna, or one of the... Uh, Peregrine, one of the, the, the Pilgrim, yeah. or, one of the, or Steel, the, the big bad guy, right? Um, but then all of a sudden he switches. So we suddenly get a bunch of stuff from the perspective of Ket Svensendot, who is the captain of the biggest, baddest ship that the... Sandra Kai forces still have, right? And as Ravna's trying to talk him into distrusting his own commander because they have good reason to think that it's been taken over by the Blight, and him trying to talk everybody else in the in the fleet to turn on them and essentially sacrifice their fleet to slow down the bad guys so that Ravna can get there, right? And I thought that was right. a really effective moment of like hardcore sci-fi, Horatio Hornblower, you know, David Weber stuff, you know what I mean? And oh, I really was, enjoyed yeah. that. Um, the description of the warfare, which I'm not going to get into, but is this weird relativistic mining thing like you're talking about, really felt cool. Uh, and not at all like Star Wars space combat, which I love Star Wars space combat, but it's just dogfighting in space, right? Which is it not is. how any yeah. kind of high-level space combat would actually work, right? But like, uh, so Mass Effect in the cutscenes more or less works like Star Wars, but if you actually read the codex about how Mass Effect space combat does, you're like, this is real weird <laughs> and hard to wrap your head around. And I love it when a sci-fi book can really lean into that and, and just really make you understand the scale 
Because the fun thing is the way they hyper jump is like these little tiny jumps, right? Like they're not tiny that you're going a light year or two, right? But you, you jump a light year and then two seconds later you jump another light year. And then another two seconds you jump three quarters of a light year, right? Which of course means you're doing all kinds of weird stuff with your relativity, which means that you're not all in the same time, right? So right. in addition to distance, because you're constantly in motion, you're going to be at the same location at different times. So you have to figure out the relative temporal position of the ship you're trying to blow up, as well as its relative physical position, and basically just put a gajillion mines in the way and hope that they trip over one of them. <laughs> and that's really interesting. That's really hard to wrap your head around, but I think he does a good job of explaining it in a way that makes sense. No, I found it. I found it. First of all, like I, I, am not sure I could have recreated it as well as you just did then. But in the reading of it, I felt very confident about what was happening physically, which is a very impressive feat for like light year warfare, right? Uh, I don't even know what a light year is. You know what I mean? Like, like so the fact that he kind yeah. of makes it a, a real physical battle between these, you know, spacecraft is very, very fun and cool. But I actually, again, kind of the emotional core of things is so improved by the switch of POV because you even have moments where these are the survivors of the planet that was destroyed, right? And Ravna is too, but she's been off world for a while. We've been with her for a while. It's just that she's a different relationship that's that's a little more, you know, distant from the planet that was destroyed. Whether or not that's like how it should be, I think there's, you know, I think he misses some notes there to be honest. But the sailors essentially, you know, the security forces, the human security forces who we get their perspective um, they look at like the main guy that, you know, he looks at Ravna and he thinks she looks like the women that I know in my life, right? She's like yeah. the women who have all died that I will never see again. Here is an example of someone I will never meet again. And actually it was the only time in the novel for me that it was like, Oh, billions of humans died. <laughs> you know, like I yeah. knew that, but like that it's, it's, it's such a, like you said, it's such a, such a high, hard sci-fi kind of aside almost like it's very important to the plot, but there's just no time to consider what it means emotionally until this moment. Um, and I thought, I thought that was good. I thought that throughout the novel, I thought he chose really smart times to change the point of view. Cause you have Pham Nguyen who's, you know, he's sort of this very heroic type who is becoming increasingly paranoid and sort of um, self-doubting. Cause like, like you said earlier, he will be kind of invested with, knowledge from the god shatter like the remaining download of the old one into his brain will sometimes take over and in those moments he feels totally confident but he he performs actions that he can't explain before or afterward including in this battle where he tells them to blow up certain ships that they do but then instead of destroying the whole fleet they you know they only destroy some some of the fleet and then afterwards he's racked with guilt he's racked with self-doubt and i thought that was actually again like he's kind of turning the hero inside out, right? Like here's a guy who is literally a construct. Like he is a construct for the story. He's a construct within the story. He's acting out the hero's part in a very like self-aware way, but acting out the hero's part is mostly like a, a hand moving you around and you going, why am I doing this? It's like he's yeah. a self-aware, it's like, it's like he's a self-aware character, right? It's, it's like the, you know I mean like it's like, a, it's like the literary character is self-aware of, of being literary almost. Um, I thought it was really fun too, but no, I, I thought that part of the space the space section was was great. And I do love that the um, I don't know how you say their name the butterfly creatures. I like that it's again he's messing around with like fables. Hey, here are some evil fairies. You know what I mean? Like there's a there's evil fairies in in the universe. Just so you know, which is which is a lot of fun. So I I want to talk a little bit about one of his sort of 
uh, writing choices. We've talked a lot about the ideas and, and the plot, and that's correct for this book, right? But I want to talk a bit about his prose. One thing he will do, sort of like Stephen King does this in the stand sometimes, he usually tells the book in, in a, you know, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, right? But every so often he will jump a little bit into the future and be like, this was, you know, this was the last time he saw this guy alive, that kind of thing, right? But he does it, I think, pretty well uh, a few times to lend you some extra concern, right? Like there's a bit when they're 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 on this space repair platform and they're the party, uh, Blue Shell and uh, Greenstock and Fam and no, Fam's not there, but Blue Shell and Greenstock are going through this hallway, right? And there's a line in there which is like. I'm not going to get it quite right, but Fam never did figure out exactly why they went through this long sort of circuitous route to get where they were going, but it may have had something to do with the betrayal that came later, right? Which is like an old trick, but it's a fun trick. I like it. But my favorite one of these is after this big battle when so much of what's left of humanity's fleet is destroyed, right? And the rest of them aren't going to be able to do anything useful anymore because they've blown up what do not appear to be the right military targets from the bad guy fleet, right? That's the whole thing you were talking about. Yeah. Fam says, I need you to blow up these 100 ships and not worry about the other 200. And those are not the biggest, baddest fighting ships. They are the ships with really good FTL travel, which is why he did it, because later on he does a magic thing. I'm not going to talk about it right now. Um, But one of the captains of the other ships uh, was really unsure about doing this and is really terrified that they have left somebody, one of their own ships out there, you know, uh, gutted in the wild, in, in the wild, the vastness of space, unable to find them. And Vinge says, you know, for the rest of his life, he would have nightmares about ships like burning in the distance and calling for help and nobody hearing, right? And that was another good moment of reminding you exactly of the emotional power, like you were saying, right? All these people's civilization has died. We mostly brushed past it when it happened because we didn't have time. But like, yeah, this destroyed these people. And I like that. He never really cuts his characters any slack, right? Even the big magical solution that gets rid of the bad guy at the end also cuts off vast portions of the galaxy from the internet and the ability to communicate, right? Like, it it sort of turns the galaxy and the zones of thought inside out such that uh, the blight is not going to be able to spread anymore and it's been destroyed, but the consequence of doing that is half the galaxy now can't talk to each other anymore. God knows how many people are going to starve to death because their trade routes were destroyed. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, Which I'm going to make a reference that no one can appreciate because it's to a role-playing game I ran a few years ago. But this is Mazardal, right? Like, we did this in our big oh, role-playing sure. game a few years ago. All right, so that's for you, me, and Zach, and I'm going to move on. But <laughs> Yeah, no, I actually had the same thought that the... Uh, uh, anyway, we'll, yeah, we won't get into it. I'll just stop there. <laughs> the, 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 tra- the, trade, the trade route's being turned inside out to destroy the universe. Weirdly prescient, Bill. Weirdly prescient of you. Um, I do, so... I do think I want to come back to some other cool ideas in a second, but on the on the writing side of things, this is a very like simple movement within the story. But one of the only pieces of advice I heard um, from like my MFA program that I, I've mentioned on, on here before, I didn't really know what it meant at the time that I heard it, but it was um, it was that you should try and like one of a good lens to view revising through is that you are trying to justify your excesses, right? Like everyone who writes has certain ticks and certain preferences and certain things they do that are kind of just of themselves. And you have to find reasons within the story to justify those ticks, which make you, you. And I think Venge is just, he is just full of too many ideas, too many ideas. So the Tynes are a pack consciousness that, you know, they're so sensitive to noise, um, that the creatures on their world, um, like that's partly how the creatures on their world, 
uh, attack and confuse them is through noise, right? Like you go through the forest and there's all these noise problems. But he has these little gerbil demon things <laughs> that, <laughs> that the uh, the tines the tines who are kind of wolves to us humans, but the tines call these little gerbil demon things. They call them wolves is how it translates to Joanna, the human. And there are these other kind of basically hive mind type lower consciousness creatures that end up attacking and decimating one of the group of tines who's trying to make warfare on the other. It's a really cool scene and it's, 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 it, it deserves in some ways more explanation than I'm giving it now. But when I read it, I, I had my thought was honestly like, oh, this is a cool this is another cool way for him to just talk about the world, right? This is basically world building for world building's sake. It's interesting, but honestly, it was it, it didn't capture me the way I thought it, it should have. And the very next scene, the leader of the Tynes, who has led this, this group through this kind of ambush by wild animals, basically reflects on it and reflects on her failure. Not only that, you know, maybe this wasn't the right way to come, but the person she's put in charge of security this actually very important character called Vendacious. The person she's put in charge of security, she reflects on like, I put him in charge because he's a great spy master. Turns out he's a traitor. But she thinks he's a great spy master. She knew he was bad at security, but she let him do it anyway because he had good spies in the enemy camp. And now she thinks I'm paying the price because he should have been patrolling and clearing this area every year so that this sort of attack didn't happen. And it was a great movement from like world building for world building's sake to sort of this character depth and this character tension and also an escalation of the dramatic tension because one of the questions we have is like, does Woodcarver, who's sort of the good Tyne, who's with Joanna the human, Woodcarver, does she know that she's going to be betrayed by one of her top lieutenants? And that it sort of deepens the mystery while also deepening the character. And I thought it was a good example of his novelistic instincts justifying the excess of his world-building kind of mania. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, but I, I guess you, to your point again, though, it's, you know, the tie stuff is just the best stuff in the book. <laughs> um, I want to ask you now about some sort of book club questions, if you have a second. Um, Let's do it. So, favorite character, go. No. <laughs> um, uh, uh, it changes. Honestly, it changes. At first, yeah, it's Pilgrim. I I really yeah, like absolutely. Rick Rackram as Pilgrim. Um, by the end, it might be Woodcarver. Um, mm, it, yeah. it shouldn't be. I really, but I just, I was drawn to the Tynes. I think Woodcarver was really great. Um, and and she, we don't get inside her, her head enough, but um, it, it, honestly, it wasn't either of the humans, though, is the, is the, is the bummer. Or, all four of the humans. Joanna probably is the, the closest human to being a favorite. What about you? So my favorite character in the book, for, so I like the Tynes stuff better, but my favorite character is actually not largely concerned with that. My favorite character is Blue Shell, the Scrode writer who is sort of, I guess, the captain of the ship. Um, so one thing we haven't talked about is I said that a long time ago somebody built these Scrodes, these computer dune buggy things, right? Well, it turns out, surprise, it was the Blight when it was around five billion years ago. And all the Scrode writers who were all around the world, is these, or all around the galaxy, as these sort of trusted traders, traders can be turned into you know, sleeper cells at the drop of a hat, right? Because the Blight can take over the Scrodes, right? Yep. And this makes Fam very nervous. Once they, like, they find it out in a way that doesn't get anybody killed. It gets Greenstock uh, very badly injured because her Scrode is destroyed. But it, uh, they actually managed to get away without too much trouble. But 
Um, FAM now won't trust Blue Stock, Blue Shell, which is a problem because Blue Shell is the only one who can really fly the ship properly, right? And Blue Shell is deeply concerned about this. He's like, okay, so basically the god who created us a billion, you know, five billion years ago that we've been basically raised to worship and think of as like going to come back someday and so on, turns out was the devil. I don't like yeah. that. I don't like the idea that you don't trust me. I don't like the fact that I'm sort of now doubting myself, right? And there's a lot of really fun stuff there. In addition to the fact that he's just a fun character throughout the book. He's, he's like also said, very funny, yeah. Yeah, funny, easily distractible, sort of an absent-minded professor, but very, very competent when the times come, you know. No, he uses the Middle, Angu- the, the middle Ages um, politeness. The talk to him, he's always saying, Sir Fam and <laughs> Lady Ravna. Yes, you know, like, he's like this ridiculous <laughs> character from the past who's also the only competent space captain. It's an amazing character. And then, of course, he does probably the most heroic thing in the book towards the end. And, and the, the, the most emotional moment for, for me in the book is when Blue Shell sacrifices himself to rescue Jeffrey and Amdi. It's true. Um, and we'll just talk about it briefly. So Jeffrey is the uh, human child who's hanging out with the Flenser camp. He's been hanging out with Amdiran and Fanny, which is a group of eight puppies that have been deliberately engineered to be, like, really good at math and nothing else, right? Um and they are sort of become a, like, there's a couple points in the book. So, so the, the way the Tynes work is they have a first name, which is like sort of a title, and then a last name, which is a combination of the syllables that make up the names of the individual members, right? So when we first meet Peregrim, he's Peregrine Rick Rack Rum, because he has Rick, Wick, Rack, and Rum, or whatever. And then one of those members dies and gets replaced by another, and then he's Peregrine Rick Rack Scar, right? And there's a few occasions when one of the Tyne uh, packs gets shattered, and what'll be left instead of Scriber Jack or Ramifan is just Ja. And Ja isn't even a person, right? He's part of a person. <laughs> um, so there are several parts in the book when the Tynes start to refer to Amdi and Jeffrey together as Amda Jeffrey, as one pack consisting of yeah. eight puppies and Jeffrey, which is really fun. Anyway, so they've been trapped. Uh, they're trying. The good guys are trying to rescue them, and the bad guy has basically at this point had enough. He's lost his mind. He's just trying to burn everything down. So he literally like pours boiling oil on the ground and lights it on fire, right? So the good guys are separated from Jeffrey and Amdi by this lake of fire. And Blue Shell says, basically, nope, I'm going to prove that I'm not a traitor. And he rides his uh, dune buggy through the fire to pick them up, put them under the, like, um, you know, some of like the protective covering on it, and then ride back. And, of course, by halfway through this trip, Blue, Blue Shell is dead, right? The He's been burned palm to death. Is dead. Yeah. Uh, burnt to death horribly, but the... Uh, the dune buggy still has its instructions. And that was, I thought, definitely the most sort of emotionally impactful moment in the book for me. It's super, like, arguably it's kind of cheap, right? Like, guy who's a traitor proves he's not by sacrificing himself. Oldest trick in the book. Still works, though. Still works really well. I was sad. Well, I and Blue Shell. I was going to say, I want to change my answer. <laughs> 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 no, because you're Blue Shell was the most fascinating character, I, especially because they're both simultaneously very simple and very complicated, which is always the best kind of character. And anyone who's funny... You know, you get extra points for being funny. Um, but do you, do you want to hit some other writing things, or should we, do we have a few more of the, the cool-ass ideas that would take us through the, the end of the plot as well? I guess I do want to talk a bit about some of the the way he writes the times and the way he does, I think, do some really fun stuff with language to make it, uh, to try to make you understand how they work. So uh, you mentioned this already, but Flenser, who is sort of the Dark Lord fascist eugenicist, right, and who is shattered into pieces and most of his pieces are dead but he'd made such a strong soul, if you will, right? That even though there's a, there's a group of four or five Tirithect, he's only like one or two of them. He still is sort of in control of the whole pack some of the time, right? The yep. other soul, Tirithect, is fighting him all the time. 
And there's one bit when they're really fighting amongst themselves because Flenser is trying to basically take back over and do a bunch of terrible things to the humans and so on. And uh, Tirithect doesn't want to do that. Tirithect is sort of a nice person. Tirithect uh, is female and Flenser is male, which doesn't mean that all of their constitutive elements are one or the other. It's just sort of, I guess, kind of a choice, right? Like, right. I, I'm not, it's not clear to me if, if you have three male members and two female members if you're male or if it's just kind of your vibe, right? Um, which is also kind of like fun gender stuff there, right? And uh, But what's fun is when he's describing this fight, he'll describe the same character with a different pronoun depending on which one is temporarily in control of the soul, right? And it's a little disorienting because be like she did this and then he did this. But like, I think it's he's made it very clear what that means. And I thought that was a really cool bit, uh, basically, is the way he did that. So that's one thing I wanted to highlight. One of the cooler sort of prose tricks he did. Well, and he, he actually has... Um... He has a style that will dip into being very casual whenever he needs it to be. Like at the very end of the book, even he, he basically is just like, what what allegories and metaphors would even be able to explain this? You know, he just kind of starts talking to the reader. And I, I actually I always yeah. find that very if you do it in the right moment, I always find that very um, beguiling, winsome, whatever. It, al- it always gets me if you do it in the right moment, because there is a way in which it's sort of breaking the fourth wall, you know? But it's usually, if you do it at the right moment, it's actually inviting the reader kind of into the story more. Like, you kind of, you get to think about it from a different angle, and I don't know, it, j- it just changes up the language in a way that I think keeps you interested. Um, and he is good at that. And he's, he's funny, too. Like, I, I sometimes hate this stuff, actually, but everyone says hey to each other, but it's H-E-I. Yeah, <laughs> it's like hey, <laughs> but it's still, but it is like it feels like a very I don't know. It felt very nineties to me in some ways. Where everyone's like hey, oh hey 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 Raph, you know like I don't know. It was a it was a fun way in which he kind of again kept them at a very like relatable level, um, just through the prose. But the yeah the slips into the semi direct address I thought were really really well timed. I guess is what I would say. But like he does it maybe two or three times right, and it's whenever one of the powers is doing something basically right. So like uh, yeah, at the end actually. when. Fam is dying as he's getting ready to do this cool sort of reshaping of the universe thing. And what's left of the god in his brain basically takes the time to say, hey, look, I did cobble you together out of spare parts, but there was a real guy here. Your memories are real, right? And Fam feels good about that because that's one of the big questions. But I don't have it right in front of me. Vinge basically says, look, there's no good way to explain what happened here, all right? This is is beyond our comprehension, but I'm going to do my best with some metaphors, right? And as you were saying. And I like it because... By highlighting sort of the artificiality of the book, it actually, I think, makes the underlying thing feel more real, which I think is what you're saying. More like, this is a real thing I'm trying to describe to you and I'm struggling with it, rather than I'm making this up as I go along, right? And I think that's, in a way, makes it feel more real by highlighting the artificiality, which is cool, right? That's not how you would think that would work. You know, if you you go, if you always think of like, um, you know, the author really does, the narrator, but the author really does have to have authority, right? You have to trust the author. And I do think it's it's like any kind of, you know, charm offensive. Sometimes these, like, these slips into semi-direct address when the thing being described can't be described. It's, a, it's almost like, um, like, you know, self-denigrating to win someone over. It's the same kind of emotional thing where you're like, oh, I trust you more because you're right. I don't know how you would describe a transcendent mind recreating the universe anything but a figurative language like that that makes sense and so you are more trustworthy than i than i used to even think you were but also he just he just times it well too like like i actually hadn't put it together it is concretely tied to the powers you're right when he's trying to go into you know he's trying to he's trying to go into their mindset which is literally impossible (laughs) and so he has to pull out just like we have to pull out to try and understand it from our perspective um 
But it is. He's. I mean, he's. A, he's. A, he's, a, he's a writer. Like, I don't know. He's. He's not going to go to the top of my list as far as like sci-fi authors I want to follow up on. But I. I did really. Enjoy, I blew through this book, and I found it really, really rewarding on a f- few different levels, which is like all I'm looking for from a book. You know what I mean? Like the prose isn't terrible. Yeah. Um, even when it's kind of clunky, it's always in service of like a good idea or a fun character. These tropes he plays with, you know, like again, fam is sort of self-consciously this heroic type. And yet he, by the end, he's just this like paranoiac. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's so, I don't know. Like I found him very, like very convincingly destroyed by his existence as a construct. Do you know what I mean? Like I found him very convincingly sort of, rattled and um you know mentally damaged but i and but like you mentioned earlier he gets that redemption where he's told your memories are real and then he dies to change the universe i do think we need to talk for a second about the countermeasure that fam uses to change the universe the MacGuffin that everyone's chasing um do you want to like describe it and kind of take a guess at how it works (laughs) if i can so uh at the very beginning of the book, when he's describing in very sort of storyteller-like language the human colony that's opening Pandora's box, right, he's describing the way the, the blight is waking up. But he also says there's some material in it that, like, sort of takes the form of a couple of... And again, this is one of those other moments when he says this isn't what happens, but this is the way to metaphorize it, right? Like, sort of take on... Like, they talk to themselves in sort of the form of two of the colonists, right? Right. I forget their names, but, you know, Oli and Lena, right? <laughs> Little little old 1950s anti-Scandinavian humor joke there. Boom. Uh, <laughs> I was in Minnesota for a while. Uh, but anyway, uh, and so they're sort of talking to each other about like, well, they've screwed up. The Blight's going to take over the world, the galaxy again, but we can give them a shot here. We can try to lead them to, to, to plant some of this information, this sort of weird nanotech mold thing on their spaceship with the kids on it, and maybe maybe the Blight won't, won't catch it. Maybe we can hide it. And that's right. That's what happens, right? And then throughout the months that the spaceship has crashed on the Tynes world, um, the Tynes really don't like going in the spaceship because it echoes a lot. And the tympanums, the sort of organs that they use to communicate with each other, they make noise, right? It's very clear that right. the, the method of sort of thinking uh, is, is by sort of making sort of noise, which is probably hard to hear for humans and bounces around. And it gets really loud in there. And so most of the Tynes hate going in there. Andy can tolerate it to some extent because he's used to it and he's just too curious to live, right? And because they put padding up everywhere. But everywhere they go in the spaceship, this mold is like taking over more and more of the spaceship. And Jeffrey doesn't have any idea what this is, but he knows his dad thought it was important, so he just kind of lets it alone. When Fam actually gets there, the mold like enters into his body, unlocks with in connection with the, the god shatter, the bits of the god left in his brain, to do space magic and like kick the, the, the slowness, the, the, the second inmost zone of thought, way the heck out, all the way up to the edge of the transcend, basically changing the rules of physics all the way up to the edge of the galaxy to sort of slap the blight out of its existence, right? And also in so doing, trap the chasing blight fleet in sublight space such that they will eventually get to the Tynes planet, but it's going to take a thousand years, literally. Right, right. And the Tynes are aware of it such that, and also those are just spaceships, right? They, they no longer have any sort of space magic. So, yeah, in a thousand years, we can probably figure out how to deal with these guys. You know, <laughs> uh, So that's kind of how it works. And it's the most sort of unexplained space magic thing we get, which is fine because it's deliberately understood to be transcend technology, which has somehow figured out a way to operate even in the, the slowness, um, which, you know, I'm not sure I completely understand how that works within Vinge's universe, but we also understand that the, the, um, 
Oh, no, that's right. He pulls it in. Sorry, that's right. So the first thing it does is it pulls the zones in such that yeah. now there isn't a slowness anymore. There, Everything is in like the beyond. And Ravna's like, you've killed us all. This fleet that was going to take, you know, eight months to get here is going to get here in like two hours. And then it kicks it all the way out such that now the fleet that was going to get here in two hours is going to get here in a thousand years, which is a really good way of highlighting how big space is that I really liked. Um, and... You know, we don't really understand how this device works, but it, uh, it's it's pretty it's kind of fun in a big, grandiose space magic kind of way. I don't know. Was there something well, else you wanted I, the, to me to say in the no, summary I, there? That was, that's, that's no, that I was perfect. Happens. Yeah, no, that was, I think that was a perfect description. I think the only thing I would add about plot is that it's been, like, one of the characters or the narration at one point floats the idea of, like, cloud creatures. Like, there are creatures that are beyond the transcendent powers. Oh, and yeah. it's possible that the computer this fungi computer that fam activates with his God shatter. Like, I think it's almost like one, not even like a sentence, but clause where it's like, maybe, maybe the, the countermeasure, this fungi computer connects with a power beyond the powers. And that's who changes the zones of thought. Uh, we don't know though. We don't know. And that's, I, I, I like it so much because it brings the, the countermeasure and the final act that fam performs brings together all those threads of, you know, what's conscious, what's organic versus what's constructed, right? Like the the fungi is both sort of, it's a fungi, but it's also a computer, right? The, the slippage between those two things is almost, you know, totally complete um, at that point. And then FAM, of course, you know, his bit of space magic, it's done through these like cosmic AI measures that, can't be space magic but at this point it's so far beyond our capacity to understand that horseshoe of of science and magic is complete and i think that is that is kind of his great fascination is like how far could these thought experiments take us into these almost like magical realms but i also just like that i like that it's just like a random fungi on a ship you know it's like it's one more funny thing where it's like oh yeah i don't know what's like you know it keeps growing it's like asbestos that saves the universe you know um, <laughs> But so yeah, I just like I I like that as a as a climactic tying together of all those threads he's playing with throughout. Um, I do think we have a few more little things we could talk about. But do you have any more big things that you want to hit um, before we kind of do some, maybe some a few smaller things? I don't know as I have any more big thing. I guess I I should re- register it's a small thing, but I'm going to do it now. We're talking about his prose. His prose is mostly good or fine, right? Uh, he does. He's dropping into casual stuff. We've talked about that in the sense of him talking to the reader, which I think mostly works. But occasionally some of his characters will drop in weird colloquialisms that I don't think quite work. Like, the word guy shows up a lot. Like, this guy is great, or this <laughs> guy does this true. or that. And at one point, Peregrine looks at somebody and says, this guy is a pro. And I was like, is that what he says? Is that what this pack of sentient dogs says? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I understand you, you can't... Like, I don't want you to write a whole language here, Verter. you got enough going on as it is. But is, is that what he says? And, like, at one point, they worked their butts off to do something. And I was like, this feels like it doesn't quite work. And that's, it's, it's, it's his vibes. I'm not sure I can say exactly why that doesn't work, but it didn't for me. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're definitely, he definitely, he's okay with canned phrases. And he, he's definitely okay with, I think he's moving so fast, like, um, sometimes he, he, he wants to use the canned phrase or the cliche or whatever it is, like, and not in a powerful way, because you can't do that in a powerful way. He just wants to use it so you get the idea and he can move on, um, which is, at, at times, that's exactly right. Like, this is a novel that I think you're meant to read at speed, you know, which doesn't mean the prose is bad, but it means he's not trying to put a lot of hiccups in there. Um, but it also means that sometimes it's like, oh, my dad wrote this. 
my dad, like, yeah. my dad, you know, <laughs> like, like this is an email from my dad all of a sudden, which I wasn't expecting. But I, I overall, yeah, no, his prose is pretty is 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 fine. I think. Um, I actually, I always think whenever I, I read someone like this, whose prose is often transparent, I do think of Stephen King and his um, kind of memoir slash guide on writing or my writing life. I can't, I, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's on writing. I think it's called on writing. Yeah. Um, but he talks about like he's in this band with Amy Tan. <laughs> this like band of writers. I forgot about write. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I've I've probably told this anecdote. I probably you know retold this on the podcast before. But you know he and um. He and Amy Tan talk about like the question they never get asked by their fans is is the prose they because they're they're writers who have these like very moving stories or very horrifying stories they're like they're plot heavy and character heavy and no one ever asks them about the language and and he uses that to kind of give an actual excerpt from I think like um uh what was that movie John Cusack was in Room One Oh Four Eight or something. Whatever. Oh, the, yeah, I can't remember. The you know what I'm talking about? Movie, anyway, yeah. the, the the story that's based on. He actually takes an excerpt from his, you know, his actual story and shows you the before and after. And I remember as a young writer, especially, it was really helpful to see like how concretely he just cut a few things and added a few things. And I think of that. I think of that all the time with a book like this, where I think for me the prose is is fine. It's not like he's not one of the great sci-fi stylists, to be honest. But I also think about like there is a workmanlike attention to detail that I've really come to respect. You know, like it can be really hard to have prose that has no nits on it, you know, and I think for the most part he does. But I also think this is a book that that is great for the ideas and for the movements and for the interplay of, you know, kind of thought experiments. Like that's why this book is great. The prose is fine, but it is it is the interplay of kind of, you know, the abstract things that make it really, really good, I think. It has been kind of funny because the other big sci-fi books I've been reading lately are, I finished not very long ago, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, and I'm partway through The Earth of the New Sun, which is the coda to it. And so, like, the thing that's been rattling around in my head a lot for the last six months is, you know, maybe the greatest work of prose sci-fi fantasy ever written, you know? Right. And so I, I'm like, ah, oh, Werner Vinge, you're not Gene Wolfe. Well, that can't be the threshold, Bill. Nobody is Gene Wolfe. <laughs> You know, Ursula K. Le Guin is not Gene Wolfe, and Ursula K. Le Guin is a heck of a prose stylist. Yeah. So stop it. No, it's you know? true. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine going from I, I I forgot you were in the middle of your your big. I, mean, I haven't read. I actually haven't read that um, by Gene Wolfe, but I, I can't imagine going from a Gene Wolfe novel to this and like the like oh this this is in the same genre nonsense. Well, yeah, not nonsense. really. Right? <laughs> I'm great. listening to. Um, we're not going to talk much about Gene Wolfe right now, but I'm listening to the Shelved by Genre read-through of The Book of the New Sun. Shelved by Genre is a new podcast. This is the first season. It's uh, Cameron Kunzelman and Michael Lutz, and then this season it's Austin Walker, uh, who are all people I know from... I shouldn't say no. I mean, I've talked to them, but I mean, like, I'm aware of from Games Criticism, right? Right. And they have a whole podcast network called Range Touch where they do things like play all of Baldur's Gate or talk about major works, works of game studies or read everything Stephen King ever wrote. And I'm really enjoying uh, going back through this podcast, uh, going back through the Book of the New Sun that way. Um, there was a million reading Gene Wolfe podcasts, but there this are. one's nice because I already sort of trust these guys because I've been reading them for like 10, 15 years now, you know. And uh, But yeah, it is fun to switch between Gene Wolfe and whatever else I'm reading right now and always be sort of like, well, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't as good. Like I was reading some Arthur Matson recently, which is, he's very good uh, in a very weird late 19th century style, but you know. The Great God Pan isn't as good as the Book of the New Sun. That's not fair. I, I gotta I gotta recalibrate my opinion here, or I'm gonna never read a book I enjoy again. <laughs> uh, 
Um, all right, what's some fun little stuff from the Werner Vinge book that we actually did for this podcast that you want to talk about? Well, one one fun little thing, which is very, very minor, is that Ravna Bergensdott is a librarian. And I really yeah. enjoyed I really enjoyed that we read, again, a book about a hero librarian who kind of, I don't know, does she actually do anything, I guess? Like, she does. Like, she's like the emotional conscience of the book. But that's a question I'm coming to all of a sudden. She's also one of the big reasons the spaceship goes out in the first place, right? Like, I agree, her contributions to the mission once it's going are relative, although she's a big part of why they can talk the uh, Sandra Kai fleet into attacking the right things. But I agree that other than that, she's mostly just there and she's talking to Jeffrey. But without her, the mission doesn't get started in the first place. She's so. sort of, a, but actually that role, though, of a galvanizing agent, that's sort of true throughout the book. Like you just said, she kind of gets... She gets the, uh, you're getting all the names right, which is killing me, man, because I'm, I'm terrible with, like, regular English names, much less, you know, sci-fi specific names. But she gets the security forces to do what Fam wants them to do. She actually is the reason that Fam doesn't outright kill Blue Shell and Greenstock. Mm -hmm. And then she puts, like, controls in the computer to kind of keep them, keep them from doing that in the future. Um, she gets the emotional connection with Jeffrey. You know, she, she is, sorry, she is emotional connection with Jeffrey, um, on the Tynes world. So she is vital, but it is funny. She's always sort of like the force behind the force, which again, I would say is a very appropriate librarian role. You know, we're a resource to other resources. We're not the resource itself, Bill. Yeah, so I think that makes sense. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I, I, I actually think we probably covered most of it. I don't know if you have some small stuff too, but... Yeah, I want to talk about how Steel and Flincer are really good villains, like just in sort of the mustache twirling, like bad guy you like hating approach, right? I don't know, Is there? they are a little bit more complicated than that, but they're also really good in that. Uh, there's a lot of really good lines. So Steel is the sort of warlord. He was one of Flenser's creations, and he's in charge of the, the bad guys, the sort of fascist eugenicist tines, right? And he has to kind of buddy up with Jeffrey because he realizes that when the space, other spaceships get here, he needs to be the beneficiary of the future technology or he's going to lose, right? Like they had a really functional military and such for the Middle Ages, but they're going to immediately no longer be of any use if the other guys get ray guns. Do you know what I mean? Right. And so he's trying to cozy up with Jeffrey, and he is not built for that. <laughs> uh, you know, Jeffrey is like nine or something like that, and so he's really cuddly. Like, he really wants to hug the puppies. He really wants to snuggle up with the, the wolf critters, you know, and Steel hates it. There's a line he says at one point where, because as you said earlier, when the times get close to each other, they're either fighting or... Thing, right that's what they're doing right <laughs> yeah and uh so but jeffrey likes to snuggle right and the puppies don't care they're you know the ambi ambi's fine with that right but for steel like getting that close to something when you're not doing either of those two things is really unsettling so he says it's kind of like having sex with a corpse because there's something you can't hear in your brain right the way you should be able to yeah and it's cuddling up with you and it feels really ugly uh, and uh, Flenser talks at one point about how... So Flenser's been doing all these horrible experiments where he, like, tortured... Like, Steel was tortured as, as puppies, right? Until eventually it produced the particular collection of insecurities and violence that Flenser wanted, right? Um, but Flenser talks about how one of the things Steel doesn't have is empathy, and that's why he'll never be a very effective sadist. Because in order to be a good sadist, you actually have to have empathy, which is, you know, a great villain line. So you know what I mean? terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and it probably makes sense. One of the other bad guys, Vendacious, who's the traitor, has a good sort of villain line where he says, you know, it's, I, I don't really know how to torture humans. It's hard to know because, like, with, with Tynes, I can just, like, cripple or kill one of their members. And that's, that's really the best way to torture a Tyne. But you're just one person. I don't really know how to torture you in the same way, which... 
makes sense, right? Like, you can break their fingers and such, but that's not going to change their soul in the same way that just killing one of the Tynes members would, right? That's yes. kind of a horrifying thing to think about, right? So there's, there's just some good outright villainy in these books that I appreciate, is one thing I wanted to say. Well, and, and on that <laughs> note, um, Lord Steele, so he... Because there's a question that hangs over the book in some ways, or, or there would have been if, if Venge didn't address it so carefully. He's this brutal dictator type personality he has jeffrey and, and amdi kind of trying to he's trying to manipulate them into doing what he wants in in terms of talking with the humans who are coming in the spaceship but why doesn't he just torture them he could just you know like he could just brutal it but he but he talks about amdi was in the the breeding line that was kind of being raised under a purely positive reinforcement model yeah <laughs> and so like the we, we talk about like they're both kind of more complicated than twirling stasma twirling mustache villains like it's because there's this sophistication that is um ongoing to explain why he's not torturing these boys right he's not because he was part of raising them in this positive reinforcement model as an experiment and he knows if he does anything brutal to them he'll kill their usefulness <laughs> so I, I liked it because he is a strictly like mustache twirling villain totally evil but he's not an idiot, which is actually a hard thing to find in literature, right? Someone who isn't just like, yeah. like, oops, I stepped on another rake, whack in the face. Like, he, he comes to his own <laughs> end because he's defeated kind of properly. One of the things I want to talk about, so this is a book partly about um, a, quote, primitive, unquote, people getting technology from space, right? That's one of the main things that's going on in the book. Right. And obviously this is an idea sci-fi has dealt with before. There's, I'm sure, a million books I haven't read, so I'm not going to pretend I have an exhaustive list. But I think it was kind of fun to read because I think sort of popular thinking on this has been sort of poisoned by Star Trek. <laughs> not in the sense that Star Trek is bad, right? But Star Trek has the prime directive, right? The Federation right. is supposed to not do that. The Federation is supposed to leave societies alone until they get warp drive, and then they can communicate with them and exchange ideas and technology, right? And you have other, other books that do this. The one that always comes to mind for me is that great work of perfect science fiction, The Animorphs. Um, <laughs> you know, The Animorphs. Which I will go to, I mean, I will defend The Animorphs to, to death, but not all of the books, obviously, but the, the ones that she actually wrote. Um, but one of the fun things in the Animorphs is the Andalites, which are sort of the good guy aliens, have their own prime directive. But it's not its not about, like, respect for lesser civilizations and not calling them lesser and letting them develop on their own the way the prime directive is, this sort of anti-imperialist thing. The Andalites refer to it as Ciro's kindness is the principle because Ciro was this Andalite who felt sorry for these weird little slug guys and gave them a bunch of technology, and then the little slug guys turned into the Yerks and tried to take over the galaxy, right? Which is a fun sort of twist on it. But anyway, uh, it was fun to see an exploration of what happens when a Middle Ages society gets cannons and is maybe going to get ray guns that actually just didn't do any of that at all. Ravna has exactly zero compunctions about giving gunpowder to the Tynes. <laughs> at I no know. point are they like, yeah. should we do this? They're just like, nah, we're going to nope. do it because otherwise the other guys are going to kill Jeffrey, um, which is not true, but it's what they, the information they're being fed. And so it was just kind of fun to just see that those ideas dealt with without worrying about Star Trek at all. Um, also, there's a lot of fun conversations between some of the sort of scholars in Woodcarver's camp with Joanna after they get the, the computer that tells them how to make gunpowder and such, where they're like, hey, I've been working my whole life to make like a slightly better forge. And now in the last 20 <laughs> minutes, we can do crazy things. And I don't know what that means for my life. Like, you know, like I'm... <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm dumb, but like this just completely undid, not undid, but transcended my life's work in six months. And I don't know how to, you know, there's a lot of good sort of character moments with that that I liked. 
So that's also well, a fairly it, small it, thing, but I enjoyed even, it. Even but even to the world building side of that, right? The the um, the Tynes realize toward the end of the novel that they actually think that they might be more um, flexible and even maybe more like capable of technological leaps than the humans, right? They can kind of take leaps in a year, even with even though they're getting help, they like successfully take these huge leaps within a year that maybe the humans could have done if the situation was reversed. But the great limiting factor is they can't work next to each other, right? Like the, the physical yeah. limitations of their, uh, you know, their physical reality means that they're, yeah, they're kind of, I don't know, it's, 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 it's an interesting way in which he, he just, he never let any world building moment kind of go where he could kind of use it to explain some of the weirdnesses. Like, oh, why are these smart people still mired in the Middle Ages? Well, they can't build together. <laughs> they can't yeah. stand next to each other to build, which is pretty vital when you're dealing with smaller and smaller um, technologies like microchips. So, yeah. yeah, But yeah, I, I, I agree, though, that, I, again, the time stuff is just great. Time stuff is good. I don't know as I have too many other specific things I want to talk about right this second. Oh, I guess just, again, in the sort of, like, this is hard sci-fi and there are consequences and you better deal with it thing, right? Like, by the time Ravna's ship gets there, they still think that the woodcarvers are the bad guys and the flensers are the good guys. Right. And so Fam takes the little, like, space pinnace down to try to go intervene and is just laying waste to woodcarver's army with his, like, big old flame lance thing, right? Which, one, highlights again how even though they've been giving them a lot of technology, they're still, you know, 4,000 years behind on tech. And two, like, I think a lesser writer would have had somebody immediately be like, stop, and, like, nobody get hurt. But, like... Fam kills, I don't know, a lot of Woodcarver's army before they eventually figure out they need to stop doing that, which is the sort of thing that, like like I said, sort of unsentimental hard sci-fi will do. Like, yeah, uh, this whole civilization got destroyed by an asteroid, and also the good guys killed a lot of the other good guys before they figured it out, you know? <laughs> that, that actually was one, that was one of the more horrifying moments of the novel, actually, was when they're just killing the wrong people outright. And I, I agree with you, the fact that, like, there wasn't a last minute, oh, no, there's a human there. Don't fire the ray gun and burn up the, the doggies. It's like, no, no, we, we did. We fired the ray gun. <laughs> yeah. and it was that happened eventually, but there's a lot of dead dogs first. <laughs> it's, it's very, yeah, it's pretty brutal. It's true. Um, so I don't know. I think it's a really wild book. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's... Uh, you know, I, I think it's the sort of book we could talk about for six hours and really delve into every sci-fi idea, but I think that's not really what this podcast is about. And also, I think that's not really what we want to do. I think what we want to say is you should go read this book if you want to read a really kick hard sci-fi novel that is a lot of fun and has some really good emotional ideas and also does some some pretty serious thinking about the nature of consciousness and such. Uh, it's, a, it's a good book. I'm very glad I read it. Thank you, Zach. Uh, I don't think we've decided what we're reading next, partly because I think we're trying to decide whether we're going to try to cram a fourth podcast into this year or not. Um, I don't think we've decided yet. I think we know what we're doing in December for sure, but I'm not going to say it right now. And I think we're, we're still up in the air as to whether we're going to try to do something between now and then. This year has been a very busy year for both of us, and um, for all mostly good reasons, I think. Nothing bad. Yeah. But uh, it's been just a, a lot. We both have read about half as much as we usually have, or less even by this point in the year. Well, no, but... I keep doing that. We have not read half as much as we usually have, but we are not as, we have not read we have not yet read half as much as we want to for the whole year and we're well past the halfway mark of the year. There we go. I know you guys are very concerned about this. Uh, you're tracking how many books I read at home. So the answer is not as many as I usually do. 
Anyway, so we will let you guys know when we know if and when we're doing another podcast before December, and we'll let you know what it is in time uh, if we think about it. We also might not. I don't know. I shouldn't make promises. We're going to do what we want to do. But the good news is nobody pays us for this podcast, so we're not derelicting any duties. I do. Don't you think sometimes we have like an anti-commercial sense? Sometimes I, I, like, so, yeah. I like I look I like, like I don't know. We could even just be on YouTube and you know probably have more of a, a footprint. But I that would require like more equipment. You know what I mean? Like I just can't I can't imagine more equipment. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know if there's a good way to turn this podcast into a money-making venture, but I do know that whatever ways there might be, we haven't done them, and that's fine. That's not the point of this project. <laughs> but uh, I don't think I have much else to say. But Werner Vinge was a lot of fun, and I'm definitely going to check out the sequel. I uh, I've heard it's not as good, and I believe that. But I it's also almost entirely on the Tynes world, and I'm gonna want to read that at some point. So same, same, same. Well, thanks as always, Bill, for doing this. It was good to get the gang back together, and hopefully we can uh, we can do it again sooner than later. I agree. So um, with that, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Joel, and I'll talk to you next time, buddy. See you, dude. Bye. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.